Section 14 of Marty and a Voyage Thither, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Marty and a Voyage Thither, Volume 2, by Herman Melville. Chapters 66 through 70. Chapter 66. A Flight of Nightingales from Yumi's Mouth. By noon, down came a calm. O oh, Neva, good Neva, kind Neva, thy sweet breath, dear Neva. So, from his shark's mouth, prayed little Vivi to the god of fair breezes. And along they swept, till the three prows neighed to the blast, and pranced on their path like steeds of crusaders. Now that this fine wind had sprung up, the sun riding joyously in the heavens, and the lagoon all tossed with white flying manes, Medea called upon Yumi to ransack his whole assortment of songs, warlike, amorous, and sentimental, and regale us with something inspiring, for too long the company had been gloomy. "'Thy best!' he cried. Then will I e'en sing you a song, my lord, which is a songful of songs. I composed it long, long since, when Yila yet bowered in Odo. Ere now, some fragments have been heard. Ah, Taji, in this my lay, live over again your happy hours. Some joys have thousand lives, can never die, for when they droop, sweet memories bind them up. My lord, I deem these verses good. They came bubbling out of me like live waters from a spring in a silver mine. And by your good leave, my lord, I have much faith in inspiration. Whoso sings is a seer. Tingling is the test, said Babalanja. Yumi, did you tingle when that song was composing? All over, Babalanja. From soul to crown? From finger to finger. My life for it, true poetry then, my lord, for this self-same tingling, I say, is the test. And infused into a song, cried Yumi, it evermore causes it so to sparkle, vivify, and irradiate, that no son of man can repeat it without tingling himself. This very song of mine may prove what I say. Modest youth, sighed Medea. Not more so than sincere, said Babalanja. He who is frank will often appear vain, my lord. Having no guile, he speaks as freely of himself as of another, and is just as ready to honor his own merits, even if imaginary, as to lament over undeniable deficiencies. Besides, such men are prone to moods which, to shallow-minded, unsympathizing mortals, make their occasional distrust of themselves appear but as a phase of self-conceit whereas the man who in the presence of his very friends parades a barred and bolted front that man so highly prizes his sweet self that he cares not to profane the shrine he worships by throwing open its portals he is locked up and ego is the key reserve alone is vanity but all mankind are egotists the world revolves upon an eye and we upon ourselves, for we are our own worlds, all other men as strangers, 
from outlandish distant climes going clad in furs then whate'er they be let us show our worlds and not seek to hide from men what oro knows truth my lord said yumi but all this applies to men in mass not specially to my poor craft of all mortals we poets are most subject to contrary moods now heaven over heaven in the skies now layer under layer in the dust this the penalty we pay for being what we are but marty only sees or thinks it sees the tokens of our self-complacency whereas all our agonies operate unseen poets are only seen when they soar the song the song cried medea never mind the metaphysics of genius and yumi thus clamorously invoked him thrice tuning his voice for the air but here be it said that the minstrel was miraculously gifted with three voices and upon occasions like a mocking-bird was a concert of sweet sounds in himself had kind friends died and bequeathed him their voices but hark in a low mild tenor he begins half railed above the hills yet rosy bright stands fresh and fair the meek and blushing morn so yela looks her pensive eyes the stars that mildly beam from out her cheeks young dawn but the still meek dawn is not i the form of yela nor morn soon rises the sun days race to run his rays abroad flash each a sword and merrily forth they flare sun music in the air so yela now rises and flashes rays shooting from aunt her long lashes sun music in the air her laugh how it bounds bright cascade of sounds peal after peal and ringing afar ringing of waters that silvery jar from basin to basin fast falling fast falling and shining and streaming yela's bosom the soft heaving lake where her laughs at last dimple and flake o oh, beautiful yela thy step so free fast fly the sea ripples revealing their dimples when forth thou heist to the frolicsome sea all the stars laugh when upward she looks all the trees chat in their woody nooks all the brooks sing all the caves ring all the buds blossom all the boughs bound all the birds carol and leaves turn round where yela looks light wells from her soul's deep sun causing many toward her to run vines to climb and flowers to spring and youths their love by hundreds bring proceed gentle yumi said babalanja the meaning said mohi the sequel said medea my lord i have ceased in the middle the end is not yet mysticism cried babalanja what minstrel must nothing ultimate come of all that melody no final and inexhaustible meaning nothing that strikes down into the soul's depths till intent upon itself it pierces in upon its own essence and is resolved into its pervading original becoming a thing constituent of the all-embracing deific whereby we mortals become part and parcel of the gods our souls to them as thoughts 
and we privy to all things occult ineffable and sublime then yumi is thy song nothing worth Allah malala saith that is no true vital breath which leaves no moisture behind i mistrust thee minstrel that thou hast not yet been impregnated by the arcane mysteries that thou dost not sufficiently ponder on the adita the monads and the hyparxes the dianoeas the unical hypostases the gnostic powers of the physical essence and the supermundane and pleromatic triads to say nothing of the abstract numenons oro forbid cried yumi the very sound of thy words affrights me then whispering to mohi is he daft again my brain is battered said medea azageti you must diet and be bled ah sighed babbalanja turning how little they ween of the rudimental quincunxes and the hecatic spherula chapter sixty seven they visit one doxodox next morning we came to a deep green wood slowly nodding over the waves its margin frothy white with foam a charming sight while delighted all our paddlers gazed medea observing babbalanja plunged in reveries called upon him to awake asking what might so absorb him ah my lord what seraphic sounds have ye driven from me sounds sure there's not heard but yonder murmuring surf what other sound heard you the thrilling of my soul's monochord my lord but prick not your ears to hear it that divine harmony is overheard by the rapt spirit alone it comes not by the auditory nerves no more azigeti no more of that look yonder a most lovely wood in truth and methinks it is here the sage doxodox surnamed the wise one dwells hark i hear the hootings of his owls said mohi my lord you must have read of him he is said to have penetrated from the zoned to the unzoned principles shall we seek him out that we may hearken to his wisdom doubtless he knows many things after which we pant the lagoon was calm as we landed not a breath stirred the plumes of the trees and as we entered the voiceless shades lifting his hand babbalanja whispered this silence is a fit introduction to the portals of telestic lore somewhere beneath this moss lurks the mystic stone nizurus whereby doxodox hath attained unto a knowledge of the ungenerated essences nightly he bathes his soul in archangelical circumlucencies o oh, doxodox whip me the strophalunian top tell o'er thy genjis down azageti down cried medea behold there sits the wise one now for true wisdom from the voices of the party the sage must have been aware of our approach but seated on a green bank beneath the shade of a red mulberry upon the boughs of which many an owl was perched he seemed intent upon describing diverse figures in the air with a jet-black wand advancing with much deference and humility babbalanja saluted him o oh, wise doxodox drawn hither by thy illustrious name we seek admittance to thy innermost wisdom 
of all mardian thou alone comprehendest those arcane combinations whereby to drag to-day the most deftly hidden things present and to come thou knowest what we are and what we shall be we beseech thee evoke thy selms tetrads pentads hexads heptads ogdodes meanest thou those new terms all foiled at thy own weapons said medea then if thou comprehendest not my nomenclature how my science but let me test thee in the portico why is it that as some things extend more remotely than others so quadamoditatives are larger than qualitatives for as much as quadamoditatives extend to those things which include the quadamoditatives themselves asagetti has found his match said medea still posed babalanja asked mohi at a loss most truly but i beseech thee wise doxodox instruct me in thy dialectics that i may embrace thy more recondite lore to begin then my child all dissibles reside in the mind but what are dissibles said medea meanest thou perfect or imperfect dissibles any kind you please but what are they perfect dissibles are of various sorts interrogative percontative adjurative optative imprecative executive substitutive compellative hypothetical and lastly dubious dubious enough azagetti forever hereafter hold thy peace ah my children i must go back to my axioms and what are they said old mohi of various sorts which again are diverse thus my contrary axioms are disjunctive and subdisjunctive and so with the rest so too in degree with my syllogisms and what of them did i not just hint what they were my child i repeat they are of various sorts connex and conjunct for example and what of them persisted mohi while babalanja arms folded stood serious and mute a sneer on his lip as with other branches of my dialectics so too in their way with my syllogisms thus when i say if it be warm it is not cold that's a simple assumption if i add but it is warm that's an ass umption so called from the syllogist himself doubtless said mohi stroking his beard poor ignorant babe no listen if finally i say therefore it is not cold that's the final inference and a most triumphant one it is cried babalanja thrice profound and sapient doxodox light of marty and beacon of the universe didst ever hear of the shark syllogism though thy epithets be true my child i distrust thy sincerity i have not yet heard of the syllogism to which thou referrest it was thus a shark seized a swimmer by the leg addressing him friend i will liberate you if you truly answer whether you think i purpose harm well knowing that sharks seldom were magnanimous he replied kind sir you mean me harm now go your ways 
No, no, my conscience forbids. Nor will I falsify the words of so voracious a mortal. You were to answer truly, but you say I mean you harm. So harm it is. Here goes your leg. Profane jester, wouldst thou insult me with thy torn foolery? Be gone, all of ye. Tramp, pack, I say, away with ye. And into the woods Doxodox himself disappeared. Bravely done, Babalanja, cried Medea. You turn the corner to admiration. I have hopes of our philosopher yet, said Mohi. Outrageous impostor, fool, dotard, oaf. Did he think to bejuggle me with his preposterous gibberish? And is this shallow phrase-man the renowned Doxodox whom I have been taught so highly to reverence? Alas, alas, a Donphy there is none. His fit again, sighed Yumi. Chapter 68 King Medea Dreams That afternoon was melting down to eve, all but Medea broad awake, yet all motionless as the slumber upon the purple mat. Sailing on, with open eyes, we slept the wakeful sleep of those who to the body only give repose, while the spirit still toils on, threading her mountain passes. King Medea's slumbers were like the helmed sentries in the saddle. From them he started like an antlered deer, bursting from out a copse. Some said he never slept, that deep within himself he but intensified the hour or leaving his crown brow in marble quiet unseen departed to far-off councils of the gods howbeit his lids never closed in the noonday sun those crystal eyes like diamonds sparkled with a fixed light as motionless we thus reclined medea turned and muttered brother gods and demigods it is not well these mortals should have less or more among my subjects is a man whose genius scorns the common theories of things, but whose still mortal mind cannot fathom the ocean at his feet. His soul's a hollow wherein he raves. List, list, whispered Yumi. Our lord is dreaming, and what a royal dream. A very royal and imperial dream, said Babalanja. He is arraigning me before high heaven. Ay, ay. In dreams, at least, he deems himself a demigod. Hist, said Mohi, he speaks again. Gods and demigods, with one gesture, all abysses we may disclose, and before this Marty's eyes evoke the shrouded time to come. Were this well, like lost children groping in the woods, they falter through their tangled paths, and at a thousand angles baffled, start upon each other and even when they make an onward move, tis but an endless vestibule that leads to naught. In my own isle of Odo, 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 how rules my viceroy there? Down, down, ye madding mobs! Ho, spearmen, charge! By the firmament but my halberdiers fly! His dream has changed, said Babalanja. He is in Odo whither his anxieties impel him. Hist, hist, said Yumi. I leap upon the soil, render thy account, Almani. 
where's my throne? Mohi, am I not a king? Do not thy chronicles record me? Yumi, am I not the soul of some one glorious song? Babalanja, speak. Mohi, Yumi. What is it, my lord? Thou dost but dream. Staring wildly, then calmly gazing round, Medea smiled. Ha! How we royalties ramble in our dreams! I've told no secrets. While he seemed to sleep, my lord spoke much, said Mohi. I knew it not, old man, nor would now, but that ye tell me. We dream not ourselves, said Babalanja, but the thing within us. I, Good morrow, Azageti. But come. No more dreams. Vivi, wine. And straight through that live-long night, immortal Medea plied the can. Chapter 69 After a long interval, by night they are becalmed. Now suns rose and set, moons grew and waned, till at last the star that erewhile heralded the dawn presaged the eve, to us sad token. While deep within the deepest heart of Marty's circle we sailed from sea to sea and isle to isle, and group to group, vast empires explored, and inland valleys to their utmost heads, and for every ray in heaven beheld a king. Needless to recount all that then befell. What tribes and caravans we saw! What vast horizons, boundless plains and sierras, in their every intervale a nation nestling! Enough that still we roamed. It was evening, and as the red sun, magnified, launched into the wave once more from a wild strand, we launched our three canoes. Soon from her clouds, hooded night, like a nun from a convent, drew nigh. Rustled her train, yet no spangles were there. But high on her brow still shone her pale crescent, haloed by bandolets, violet, red, and yellow. So looked the lone watcher through her rainbow iris, so sad the night without stars. The winds were laid, the lagoon still as a prairie of an August noon. Let us dream out the calm, said Medea. One of ye paddlers, watch. Ho, companions, who's for Cathay? Sleep reigned throughout the canoes, sleeping upon the waters. But nearer and nearer, low-creeping along, came mists and vapors, a thousand, spotted with twinklings of will-o'-wisps from neighboring shores. Dusky leopards stealing on by crouches, those vapors seemed. Hours silently passed. When, startled by a cry, Taji sprang to his feet, against which something rattled. Then a quick splash, and a dark form bounded into the lagoon. The dozing watcher had called aloud, and, about to stab, the assassin, dropping his stiletto, plunged. Peering hard through those treacherous mists, two figures in a shallop were a spy dragging another, dripping from the brine. Foiled again, and foiled forever. No foe's corpse was I. As we gazed, in the gloom quickly vanished the shallop ere ours could be reversed to pursue. Then from the opposite mists glided a second canoe, 
and beneath the iris round the moon shone now another, Hautia's flowery flag. Vain to wave the sirens off, so still they came. One waved a plant of sickly silver green. The midnight tremula, cried Yumi, the falling star of flowers. Still I come, when least foreseen, then flee. The second waved a hemlock top, the spike just tapering its final point. The third, a convolvulus, half-closed. The end draws nigh, and all thy hopes are waning. Then they proffered grapes. But once more waved off, silently they vanished. Again the buried barb tore at my soul. Again Yila was invoked, but Hautia made reply. Slowly wore out the night, but when uprose the sun, fled clouds and fled sadness. Chapter 70 They Land at Hulumulu Keep all three prows for yonder rock, cried Medea. No sadness on this merry morn, and now for the Isle of Cripples, even Hulumulu. The Isle of Cripples? Aye, why not? Mohi, tell how they came to club. In substance, this was the narration. Averse to the barbarous custom of destroying at birth all infants not symmetrically formed, but equally desirous of removing from their sight those unfortunate beings, the islanders of a neighboring group had long ago established an asylum for cripples, where they lived subject to their own regulations, ruled by a king of their own election. In short, forming a distinct class of beings by themselves. One only restriction was placed upon them. On no account must they quit the isle assigned them. And to the surrounding islanders, so unpleasant the sight of a distorted mortal that a stranger landing at Hulumulu was deemed a prodigy. Wherefore, respecting any knowledge of aught beyond them, the cripples were well-nigh as isolated as if Hulumulu was the only terra firma extant. Dwelling in a community of their own, these unfortunates, who otherwise had remained few in number, increased and multiplied greatly. Nor did successive generations improve in symmetry upon those preceding them. Soon we drew nigh to the isle. Heaped up and jagged with rocks, and here and there covered with dwarfed, twisted thickets, it seemed a fit place for its denizens. Landing, we were surrounded by a heterogeneous mob, and thus escorted, took our way inland, toward the abode of their lord, King Yoki. What a scene! Here, helping himself along with two crotched roots, hobbled a dwarf without legs. Another stalked before, one arm fixed in the air like a lightning-rod. A third, more active than any, seal-like, flirted a pair of flippers and went skipping along. A fourth hopped on a solitary pin, at every bound, spinning round like a top, to gaze. While still another, furnished with feelers or fins, rolled himself up in a ball, bowling over the ground in advance. With curious instinct, the blind stuck close to our side. With their chattering finger, the deaf and the dumb described angles, obtuse and acute, in the air. And like stones rolling down rocky ravines, scores of stammerers stuttered. Discord wedded deformity. 
all asses brays were now harmonious memories all calibans as angels yet for every stare we gave them three stares they gave us at last we halted before a tenement of rude stones crooked banyan boughs its rafters thatched with fantastic leaves so rambling and irregular its plan it seemed thrown up by the eruption according to sage mohi the origin of the isle itself entering we saw king yoki ah sadly lacking was he in all the requisites of an efficient ruler deaf and dumb he was and save arms minus everything but an indispensable trunk and head so huge his all-comprehensive mouth it seemed to swallow up itself but shapeless helpless as was yoki as king of hulumulu he was competent the state being a limited monarchy of which his highness was but the passive and ornamental head as his visitors advanced he fell to gossiping with his fingers a servitor interpreting very curious to note the rapidity with which motion was translated into sound and the simultaneousness with which meaning made its way through four successive channels to the mind hand sight voice and tympanum much amazement his highness now expressed horrified his glances why club such frights as ye heard ye to keep in countenance or are afraid of your own hideousness that ye dread to go alone monsters speak great oro cried mohi are we then taken for cripples by the very king of the cripples my lord are not our legs and arms all right comelier ones were never turned by turners mohi but royal yoki in sooth we feel abashed before thee some further stares were then exchanged when his highness sought to know whether there were any comparative anatomists among his visitors comparative anatomists not one and why may king yoki ask that question inquired babalanja then was made the following statement during the latter part of his reign when he seemed fallen into his dotage the venerable predecessor of king yoki had been much attached to an old gray-headed chimpanzee one day found meditating in the woods rozoko was his name he was very grave and reverend of aspect much of a philosopher to him all gnarled and knotty subjects were familiar in his day he had cracked many a crabbed nut and so in love with his timonian solitude was rizoko that it needed many bribes and bland persuasions to induce him to desert his mossy hillside misanthropic cave for the distracting tumult of a court but ere long promoted to high offices and made the royal favorite the woodland sage forgot his forests and love for love returned the aged king's caresses ardent friends they straight became dined and drank together with quivering lips quaffed long-drawn sober bumpers comparing all their past experiences and canvassing those hidden themes on which octogenarians dilate for when the fires and broils of youth are past and marty wears its truer aspect then we love to think not act the present seems more unsubstantial than the past then we seek out greybeards like ourselves and hold discourse of palsies 
hearses, shrouds, and tombs. Appoint our undertakers. Our mantles gather round us, like to winding sheets, and every night lie down to die. Then the world's great bubble bursts. Then life's clouds seem sweeping by, revealing heaven to our straining eyes. Then we tell our beads, and murmur paternosters, and in trembling accents cry, Oro, be merciful. So the monarch and Rosoko. But not always were they thus. Of bright, cheerful mornings they took slow, tottering rambles in the woods, nodding over grotesque walking-sticks of the chimpanzee's handiwork. For sedate Rizoko was a dilettante arborist, an amateur in canes. Indeed, canes at last became his hobby. For half daft with age, sometimes he straddled his good staff and gently rode abroad to take the salubrious evening air deeming it more befitting exercise at times than walking into this menage he soon initiated his friend the king and side by side they often pranced or wearying of the saddle dismounted and paused to ponder over prostrate palms decaying across the path their mystic rings they counted and for every ring a year in their own calendars now so closely did the monarch cleave to the chimpanzee that in good time summoning his subjects earnestly he charged it on them that at death he and his faithful friend should be buried in one tomb it came to pass the monarch died and poor rosoko now reduced to second childhood wailed most dismally no one slept that night in hulumulu never did he leave the body and at last slowly going round it thrice he laid him down close nestled and noiselessly expired the king's injunctions were remembered and one vault received them both moon followed moon and wrought upon by jeers and taunts the people of the isle became greatly scandalized that a base-born baboon should share the shroud of their departed lord though they themselves had tucked in the aged aeneas fast by the side of his Achates. They straight resolved to build another vault, and over it a lofty cairn, and thither carry the remains they reverenced. But at the disinterring a sad perplexity arose. For lo, surpassing Saul and Jonathan, not even in decay were these fast friends divided. So mingled every relic, Ilium and Ulna, Carpus and Metacarpus and so similar the corresponding parts that like the literary remains of beaumont and of fletcher which was which no spectacles could tell therefore they desisted lest the towering monument they had reared might commemorate an ape and not a king such the narration hearing which my lord medea kept stately silent but in courtly phrase as beseemed him babalanja turban in hand thus spoke my concern is extreme king yoki at the embarrassment into which your island is thrown nor less my grief that i myself am not the man to put an end to it i could weep that comparative anatomists are not so numerous now as hereafter they assuredly must become when their services shall be in greater request when at last last day of all millions of noble and ignoble spirits will loudly clamour for lost skeletons when contending claimants 
shall start up for one poor carious spine, and dog-like we shall quarrel over our own bones. Then entered dwarf stewards and major-domos, aloft bearing twisted antlers, all hollowed out in goblets, grouped, announcing dinner. Loving not, however, to dine with misshapen Mardians, King Medea was loath to move. But Babalanja, quoting the old proverb, Strike me in the face, but refuse not my yams, induced him to sacrifice his fastidiousness. So under a flourish of ram-horn bugles, court and company proceeded to the banquet. Central was a long, dislocated trunk of a wild banyan, like a huge centipede crawling on its hundred branches, sawn of even lengths for legs. This table was set out with wry-necked gourds, deformities of calabashes, and shapeless trenchers dug out of knotty woods. The first course was shrimp soup, served in great clamp-shells. The second, lobsters, cuttlefish, crabs, cockles, crayfish. The third, hunch-backed roots of the taro plant, plantains perversely curling at the end like the inveterate tales of pertinacious pigs, and for dessert ill-shaped melons, huge as idiots' heads, plainly suffering from water in the brain. Now these viands were commended to the favorable notice of all guests, not only for their delicacy of flavor, but for their symmetry. And in the intervals of the courses we were bored with hints to admire numerous objects of virtu, bow-legged stools of mangrove wood, zigzag rapiers of bone, armlets of grampus vertebrae, outlandish tureens of the calipes of terrapin, and canakins of the skulls of baboons. The banquet over, with many congees, we withdrew. Returning to the waterside, we passed a field where dwarfs were laboring in beds of yams, heaping the soil around the roots by scratching it backward as a dog. All things in readiness, Yoki's valet, a tri-armed dwarf, treated us to a glorious start, by giving each canoe a vigorous triple-push, crying, Away with ye, monsters! Nor must it be omitted that, just previous to embarking, Vivi, spying a curious-looking stone, turned it over, and found a snake. End of section 14. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.